We're reading this morning from Romans chapter 15, beginning with verse 7 to 13. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 18 to 21. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Iconium, I have fully proclaimed the message of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Let us pray. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. The heavens declare thy glory, and the earth showeth forth thy handiwork. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for its blessings. You have given us the gift of life. And more than that, much more than that, you give us the gift of eternal life. We praise you for your goodness, your majesty, and your glory. But most of all, because you became one of us, to live among us, to know us, to feel with us, to see and to hear and to know as one who is among us, the one who has borne our burdens and carried our sorrows, the one who is able to know us from the inside out. We thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who comes to us to save, to redeem, to renew, to give us that life that is everlasting life. Help us as we worship you today and as we worship you every day that we will know your greatness and your goodness. But help us that we may understand more completely that you call upon us as your servants, as your disciples, as those who have received your grace to be the bearers of that grace, to be those who will go forth wherever we may be and in whatever circumstances we find ourselves to share that good news, that glorious hope,
of the gospel. Again, we thank you and we praise you and we honor you, world without end. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mr. Felix and Miss Dean. We have had a wonderfully full morning already today. I want to invite you to keep your Bibles open. Our kids, Children's Church age, you all can be uh, dismissed to Children's Church at this time. Our family likes Legos. We are a Lego family. I've got one of my Legos that have not been put together yet. This is a pic of what this Lego is going to look like when it is completed. Thank you. If you're going to have a prop, you should probably turn it the right way, right? So this will be a Jeep Wrangler. Now, it's got 665 pieces in it. Thank God it doesn't have 666 or I couldn't use it this morning. Um, but if I dump these 665 pieces out on the floor without this picture, without these instructions, we would have a struggle to get the Lego completed without knowing that end goal. Well, as we preach missions today, I want you to see that end goal. You've already heard these verses once this morning, but let's come back into Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. There's, there's the goal. Gathered around the throne and before the Lamb, a multitude of worshipers from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So how do we get there? Well, we've got that goal, we've got the instructions, and it is believers taking the good news of Jesus and sharing it with others. So we've come into Romans 15 this morning. The purpose of Christ's coming was the glory of God in redeeming sinners who become worshipers. So the heart really in verses 7 through 13 is 9a, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then Paul gives us four Old Testament references here. And we really see within them a theme of Gentile worship. If you just look there, you will see, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Then rejoice, O Gentiles. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. Those are expressions of worship, aren't they? Well, what do we learn about God in a text like this one? Well, we learn at least this. He is worthy to be worshipped. Now, when I say that, I don't mean he's one of many who are worthy to be worshipped. I mean, he is the only God, the only one worthy of our worship the original audience receiving this letter of Romans in Rome, in this city of Rome, that city was not monotheistic. They were worshiping a lot of gods who were not worthy of being worshipped. There is one who is worthy. That's what we learn about God. What do we learn about humanity in a text like this? Here's the thing. We were created to worship. Every person you meet, all 8 billion people on this planet are worshipers. It is not if we will worship, it is what we will worship. So if you ask, what is the ultimate purpose of every 
one of those people living on our planet now and have ever and ever will. It is to worship. But the object of our worship has to be right. You were not created to worship Jupiter or Diana or money or popularity. You were created to worship the one true God. So that we can say anyone who does not worship God is not living according to the purpose for which God created them. Right worship and right joy go hand in hand. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the ultimate purpose of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I just want to tell you, there is no greater joy than knowing and worshiping God. So we come into Romans 15, and it is radically focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ going to the nations, going to the Gentiles. Yet in verses 7 through 13, when you take that text, the main focus of that is the unity of the church. So how does a text focused on church unity lead to a passion's for a passion for missions to the nations. I think one of the challenges when you jump into a book cold is understanding the context. We're in chapter 15 of 16. The first 11 chapters of Romans is explaining to us how this holy God can declare righteous unholy sinners. And that is solely through the work of Jesus Christ and our faith in him. So it's all summed up in mercy. And then you come to chapters 12 through 16, and it's how do we practically live out that doctrine of the first 11 chapters? How do we live in light of God's mercy to us? When you come to chapter 13, verse 8, one of the answers there is love within the community of believers. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. That's great. That's chapter 13. And then you come into chapters 14 and 15. And it gets a little bit hairy. Because in this church at Rome, in this original audience, they're in this church, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Now nobody's looking at me just stunned by that. This is a bigger deal than we usually think of. These are two groups with stunningly different cultural backgrounds. And here they are in one church. Now, we celebrated Thanksgiving about 10 days ago. And I'm so glad the Egg Bowl was on Thanksgiving Day. Ole Miss and Mississippi State playing each other. Trying to set this a little bit in context. So think of the tension in homes where families gather where there are diehard Ole Miss fans and diehard Mississippi State fans all together right there. Here are families who love each other, gathered to enjoy a nice, peaceful meal, focused on gratitude, and then kickoff happens. And all bets are off, right? They might be at each other's throats. Maybe the Mississippi State fan says, you know, I hope my Ole Miss family member just chokes on that dry turkey. (laughs) Ole Miss fan says the Mississippi State fan, I hope they gain 10 pounds from that pumpkin pie. Now, think about in that home, culture is the same, language is the same, bloodline is the same. All that's different is which state team they root for. So they have lots in common, one small difference. Now, Jewish believers and Gentile believers have almost nothing in common, except for 
their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's where it gets tricky. Paul's spelling this out in chapter 14. Jewish believers growing up with Sabbath observance may have held on to Saturdays a day where they're not going to work. And now let's say Gentile believer, they're working on their home and ask the Jewish believer, hey, come on over on Saturday, help me patch up this spot on my wall. Well, the Jewish believer might be deeply offended. That's one of the issues. And then there's also food issues. Jewish believers may have still been eating uh, or avoiding unclean foods. Now, the church, if it's a, a good church, right, they're going to have a potluck sometimes after the worship service. So they have this potluck, and you've got Gentile believers throwing pork chops on the grill. And Jewish believers may just say, that's it, I'm out, I'm leaving the church. So these are some of the challenges that could come in here and see what Paul does not say. He does not say, this is too hard. Let's establish First Baptist Gentile congregation on this side of the street in Rome and let's establish First Baptist Jewish congregation on this side of the street in Rome. Paul does not say that. So what does Paul say? Chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, that welcome is not weak. You might have a welcome mat at your front door, but let's face it, you don't mean it. You certainly don't mean it for everybody. You don't mean it for strangers the same way you do family. Somebody rings your doorbell, you're ducking behind the couch, right? Because you don't want to welcome strangers in your home maybe the same way you do family. Paul's welcome is deep here. Another translation of what Miss Dean read for us, accept. And let's see how deep this acceptance goes. He roots it in Christ accepted us as members of his family. And that's how the Jewish believer and Gentile believer welcome each other because they are family, they're brothers and sisters in Jesus. So with all those ethnic cultural differences, they're family. And what unites them, that one thing that unites them, is greater than all that divides them. And then Paul begins verse 8 with 4. Now, what Paul is doing here is giving the theological grounds for why they should accept one another's family and be together in the church. God made promises in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming. And his ministry was never meant to just go to Jewish people. The promise, maybe, one of the main promises in mind here comes from Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. To Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham is father of the Jews. From his line will come Jesus. And then through him the nations are blessed. So why does Paul give those four quotations, likely from three different sections of Jewish writings, law, prophets, writings, to show God, including the Gentiles, alongside Jews, in faith in Jesus as part of his people, was not plan B. This was not something that began at Jesus' incarnation. This was the purpose of God all along. So it's not a new plan. This is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. So he says to us, For I tell you that Christ became a servant. So he became a servant, he died on the cross, rose from the dead, so that a new people could be formed. And Paul spells this out in Ephesians chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the unity of the Roman church made up of Jewish and Gentile believers and the, Roman, and, and the unity of every church is founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just come for one nation, one ethnic group, one language. He came so that the nations could come to know him. And we're in his family solely by God's mercy and God's name is glorified when we worship together. So I want you to hear from that the logic of the gospel going to the nations. If it is the will of God that Jew and Gentile worship together in the people of God, and if it's always been the plan of God that both Jew and Gentile will hear and believe, won't the nations have to hear from somebody who knows the gospel? And if that is the case, won't someone have to go and share that good news with them? Won't someone have to go and tell them about an incarnate, perfect, crucified, risen, exalted, and soon returning Savior, Jesus? So, maybe let's ask a big picture question. Why did Paul write Romans in the first place? This is, I fully believe like others, this is the greatest letter ever written. But why do we get this book so filled with the richest theology in our Bible? Here's what John Piper says about the book of Romans. Romans is the greatest missionary support letter that has ever been written. Now, why would he say that? In verse 24 of chapter 15, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul's looking for them to send him. And if they're going to financially send him, they need to know his theology. So he writes them this letter spelling out his theology. And as he does, he's fully confident they'll send him. By verse 28, When therefore I have completed this and delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Well, why Spain? Do you think Paul just grabbed a map, shut his eyes, put his finger down, and said, Oh, I think I'll just go to Spain. That's where I landed. That's not what Paul did. Paul is strategic. What is he doing? Well, his ambition is, I want to go where Christ has not been named. You heard this in chapter 15, verses 20 and 21. Hear it again. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So what's happened? Paul has planted churches, and he's completed his work of going from Jerusalem to Illyricum and planted churches. Now, does that mean every person in that area had heard and was a believer? Absolutely not. Many people still need to hear, but he doesn't see that as his job at this point. He believes those churches planted will reach those around them. They'll reach their city, their neighbors, and the surrounding area. So he leaves it to those churches. That's what they're supposed to do. Great Commission people, where they're planted, reaching those around them. But this guy's heart is beating for pioneer work where people have never heard. I think Paul would count as a tragedy that people are going to be born, be raised, get a job, get married, have kids, have grandkids, and die 
without ever hearing the name of Jesus. So Paul has a heart that beats for the nation. And he grounds this, as Paul does, in Scripture. In verse 21, Paul quotes Isaiah 52. And that text in Isaiah reveals the substitutionary atonement that the suffering servant, which is Christ, would provide by his death and resurrection. And Paul just really believes that when people hear in the nations about Jesus who went to the cross, died for their sins, fully God, fully man, perfect, dying for no sin of his own, but for the sin of those who would believe and put their faith in him, that when he dies, he rises again, he is exalted, that when people hear this good news, that they're really going to believe. Paul just believes that. Paul is convinced, as we must be, that there is one way for us to be reconciled to this holy God, and that is through faith in Jesus. Paul also fully believes, as we must, that people must hear this good news. And Paul also fully believes, as must we, that for people to hear, gospel messengers have to share. So he's going to go. He makes it his ambition. He eagerly strives for this. Now here's the thing. We don't know if Paul ever got to Spain. He may have been martyred before that. Does that mean, well, this whole thing is useless? Paul's letter to Rome, why do you write it? Is it futile if he didn't even make it? Was this, was his ambition pointless? Here's the thing. Paul may not have made it to Spain, but the gospel did. Somebody else, if Paul didn't make it, had a heart to go to the nation, and they got to Spain. Now, what should we do in light of Romans 15? So for most of us, our going, our Great Commission work will not look like crossing an ocean. It might look like crossing the street to our neighbor's house. It might look like crossing a hallway at work. It might look like closing the distance between us and someone at the gym. It might look like entering into a coffee shop to engage in gospel conversation with someone. So even though most of us will not be called to vocational missions, we are called to be great commission people where we're planted. One author talks about every church has a zip code, and our zip code is no accident. God has called us to reach our zip code. We are to be great commission people here, impacting Dixie and Hattiesburg for the kingdom of God. We must seek to advance the kingdom in the Jerusalem that God has given us here. I can tell you, I agree with Paul Chitwa, the great world's greatest problem is lostness. That's our IMB president. I can tell you the greatest problem in Dixie and Hattiesburg is lostness. The greatest problem anywhere is lostness. And we as great commission people need to be impacting that lostness around us with the proclamation of the good news. So, we need to be great commission people where God has placed us. But we also need to be great commission people to the nations. There are unengaged, unreached people who need gospel messengers that are seeking them, that are going to them. We need both. Sometimes a mission sermon can often be a guilt trip, and I don't want that to be the case. I don't want those called to stay to feel inferior, but I also want to extend the call and say, God may raise up 
some of those sweet kids that were singing up front this morning to go to the nation. God may put it on somebody's heart in here that they are to go to the nations. And I want you to feel that. I want you to investigate that call. And I think we can get a good balance of both sides of this from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 5 through 8, Paul wrote, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Paul is a pioneer missionary. He's going, he wants to reach those who have never heard. He's just, he's got to go. And may God raise up people out of Dixie Baptist Church who's got to go. And there was the Apollos, who was the waterer. He was the one to stay behind and nurture. I'm, I'm, I'm an Apollos, from what I can tell, at least for now. God has not called me to go to the nation, but he's called me to water. Dixie Baptist Church has been around for 100 years. Contrary to how old you think I look, I am not the first church planner of Dixie Baptist Church. I am building on the foundation of what has come before me. So some of you are going to stay. You're going to be Great Commission people where you are. But some God may be calling to go. And every one of us should be concerned about reducing lostness around the globe. So I just want to ask you, in this moment, before you go to sleep tonight, if you're married, would you get with your spouse? If you have a family, get with your family. And I just ask you to pray. What would God have you to do to reduce lostness in this world? What is God calling you to do to impact the nations for the gospel? For some of you, you may ask, God, are you calling me to go? And that answer might be yes. For some of you, you might be saying, God, are you calling me to pray and give? And if so, pray and give. I want to come back. Verses 12 through 13 as we close. The word hope is used three times. We're in the, the first Sunday of Advent. And I think the theme around that first Sunday of Advent is hope. I, I just really believe that every person in the world would like peace and joy and hope. But the way our culture speaks about hope, it's really slippery. It's like somebody pouring water in your hand and you're trying to hold it. That's cultural hope. It's based on circumstance. It's wishy-washy. It's, it's desire that's not certain. So it's just sliding through our fingers. Gospel hope is not like that. Gospel hope is solid. Gospel hope lasts. Gospel hope sustains you when your world comes crashing down around you. Because our hope is not in things. Our hope is not in us. Our hope is gloriously here as Paul describes it in the God of hope. And this God of hope as we hope in the root and shoot of Jesse, Jesus Christ, the unique, fully God, fully man, as we hope in him, the Holy Spirit causes us to abound in hope. So those of us who had that hope, we need to understand, there's hopeless people around you every day. And there are hopeless people in the nations who don't have anything 
to cling to who are lost in their sins. What is the ultimate goal of missions? The ultimate goal of missions is the glory of God. When wrath-deserving sinners like me are saved through no goodness of their own, but solely by the grace of God, it is God and not man who is glorified. More people become worshipers and recognize the glory of God. So the ultimate purpose of the universe is the glory of God. The ultimate purpose of your life is the glory of God. The ultimate purpose of missions is the glory of God. We're going to sing a song. We're asking that question. Is he worthy of this? Is he worthy of all glory? He is. He is. And there are unengaged, unreached people groups who need to hear. If we have that picture of the map, if we could place that up there at this time. If I didn't get it to you, that's okay too. But there are so many unengaged, unreached people groups where nobody is currently working, striving to get the gospel to them. Ben and Michael are going to close out our sermon time by telling you about one people group. And that's the Tusu people in China. This is one of those unengaged, unreached people group. And why did I choose them? Really, I chose them because of their size. They are really similar, this people group, to the size of Hattiesburg. Same basic type population size. And I just want you to think about, as Ben and Michael, you guys come on up. As they're describing the city and praying for it, or this people group and praying for it, I want you to imagine in all of Hattiesburg that there are less than 0.5% or 0.05, whichever the stat is, believers. We've got around 50 churches in our Pine Belt Baptist Association. Think about all the other churches. We have lots of gospel influence here, which is great. But just imagine, no church, no gospel proclamation, an entire people group the size of Hattiesburg. Ben, Michael, would y'all come share about this and pray for this as we close? For more than 1,300 years, the Tusu have appeared in Chinese records in Yunwen province. In some areas, the Tusu love to come together and participate in local festivals, since it gives them a chance to relax and forget about the struggles of their day. The festivals also serve as a reunion for relatives and friends. The Tiger Dance Festival is held one week during the first lunar month of each year. At another time of the year, the Tusu indulge in ceremonial washing and bathing, which represents a cleansing from sin for the past year's transgressions. Houses are also thoroughly cleaned out as the people bid to start the upcoming year afresh. They also eat gluttonous rice, dance, sing, and get drunk. Polytheism, animism, and ancestor worship are the three main religions among the Tusu people. The status of Christianity among the Tusu is uncertain, but there are believed to be about 20 Catholic believers in that county. There are a number of Han Chinese and Bai churches in the area, but most of the people do not really understand the gospel. Many others have no awareness of the existence of Christianity at all. What the Tusu people need is the gospel. They are lost, and as Pastor Jeremy put this morning, they need the gospel. So how can you pray for them? Pray for bold workers who are driven by the love of the Holy Spirit to go to them. And pray for an unstoppable movement uh, to Christ, for Christ among them.
Pray with me, please. Father, you are worthy. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We pray for the Tusu people, Father. There are people that don't know you. There are people that worship their ancestors, ones who have already died. Father, we worship one who has died but has been resurrected from the dead. Christ has come back from the grave, and through him we have hope. This people, they don't know you, Father. They don't have hope. They believe that Jesus, as Brad has taught us, they believe that Jesus is the guy that lives down the road. They don't know that he is the one that died for us. We pray that you would send labors for the harvest, Father. We pray for boldness for them, that they would have the words to say, that you would equip them, that you would send them, Father. We pray that they would be driven by the love of the Holy Spirit to go and to share what has been the greatest blessing of all time. Father, you are unstoppable and all-powerful. We pray for an unstoppable movement and an unstoppable revival for these people to come to know you, Father. Send us. Amen.